As a playwright, her acclaimed works include Execution of Justice and Having Our Say. As a director, she has staged plays by Ibsen and Lorca, up through Fugard, Albi, and Durang. And as an artistic director, she is celebrating her 20th year as the head of Princeton's McCarter Theatre. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing, and I'm very pleased to welcome Emily Mann. Hi, Emily. Hi, Howard. It's nice to be here. 20 years as artistic director. We can acknowledge that we've known each other longer than that. Yes. It's, it's amazing that a 20-year run, it's extraordinary to look back on it. Did you, when you first took that job, say, I want to be here for 20 years, or did it just happen? Well, I don't know if it just happened, but certainly I was not thinking of it being a long stay when I accepted the job. I thought I would be there from three to five years maximum, and uh, then other things happened, and uh, it's a great marriage. I'm in the right place, at the, the right theater, the right community. It's been a great joy. When you first went there, was it an immediate match because you succeeded Nagel Jackson, who'd been there for many years, and certainly audiences adapt to artistic directors, and you have some very specific ideas about work that you like, and it was fairly different than the work probably that Nagel liked. Yes, so, exactly So right. was it love at first sight between you and the McCarter audience? Absolutely not. In fact, <laughs> I remember very, very smart words from uh, Sir Peter Hall, who had uh, advised me to to actually take the job. He thought it was a grand idea, and we may come back to that at another point. But what he said to me is, if you have a very clear vision and everything you put on that stage is an event, then when you see people running out the doors, just wave goodbye happily. And that's what I did. I would say when I started, I had something like under 5,000 subscribers. I may have lost a 1,000 more in that first season. And I remember thinking, just just wave goodbye as my heart was breaking. But then waves of people came in, those people who'd been hungry for the kind of work that I was doing. And they came and they stayed and we grew. I think we doubled the subscription within about three years. We found our audience. Some of the research and some of the comments that in, uh, were written suggested that a real turning point was was Three Sisters. Absolutely right. And that Three Sisters had what would be considered a starry cast anywhere, let alone at a regional theater. But yes. I mean, I'm even trying to, to remember Mary Stuart Masterson, right. Linda Hunt, mm-hmm. um, Francis McDormand. Those so. were the, the three sisters. Mm-hmm. And then Laura San Giacomo was, was playing Natasha. Ed Herman uh, was a part of it. Joseph Summer, uh, Peter Francis James. It was just across the board, a fantastic group. Myra uh, Carter was playing on FISA. But was it a case of you needed the celebrity to get people to see what you were doing? It wasn't that suddenly everybody said, ooh, Chekhov, and came running. Right. Um, Oddly enough, even with that cast, 
many of them were not yet famous. This was before Franny McDormand was famous. Uh, Linda Hunt had her Academy Award, but she wasn't high on everyone's um, radar screen. What happened was Mary Stuart Masterson was in a movie called Fried Green Tomatoes. Remember that? Mm-hmm. It opened our opening weekend. Oh. It became a sensation, and people started storming the doors. We played to 101%. Hmm. Standing room only. And that's what shifted everything around. Hmm. It was also one of the best things I've ever done. And it was a fantastic cast from uh, top to bottom. Um, But it became, I think, that runaway hit because of Mary's – just the the, the luck of Mary Stewart's opening of that movie. Hmm. What do you do to follow that up? <laughs> How do you – because, yes, you can lure people in when you have the level of attention that a film can get. Mm-hmm. But how do you then get those people who came in that first time to say, I want to come back again when there may not be a celebrity? And certainly regional theater was not founded on the idea that there would be stars luring people into every show. Absolutely right. And we had to work hard – uh, to convince people, though, I mean, some people came to Three Sisters and never mind hadn't seen Chekhov before. They'd never been to a play before. So we, yes, I know. You know I like the look on your face. So we had to then convert those people into either uh, repeat single ticket buyers or subscribers. And we had a way of getting to them, and we did. We had many talkbacks. We had letters. We had phone calls. And we worked hard to... Um, start a communication, a conversation with our audience, which I hope we're doing to this day. Um, And they came back. And when they came back and liked the next one, then they came back for the next and then the next and the next. And we started to build a very strong audience base. Hmm. It was a very exciting time. Staying with the early years, you you really already had a dual career when you became an artistic director, which became uh, whatever we would say the triplicate career <laughs> yes. is. You were a playwright mm-hmm. and you were a successful freelance director. Looking at the directing first, when you became an artistic director, suddenly your responsibility is about more than just your own shows. And I'm wondering how, in again, in those early years – you made the transition to, in some ways, mentoring or simply opening up the doors to other directors. Well, Howard, you probably remember, because we knew each other when, that I sort of grew up in the not-for-profit theater world. And I loved the great theaters that I worked at. One of them was Hartford Stage Company, where I first met you, and where Mark Lamos was um, artistic director. And it were two people who uh, encouraged me to take the job. One was Peter Hall, whom I've mentioned before, and the other was Mark Lamos. And Mark gave me fantastic advice because he said, you're at a point in your work as an artist where you need to make a body of work in one place and with a community. Uh, Also, to make your mark with curating a body of work of the people whom you most admire and want to support in the profession. And thirdly, because he knows I'm very much a, you know, a community activist and part of my, my, my roots go there, said so you'll be able to affect change in those ways too because you'll be able to go into the schools, you'll be able to go into the community centers and bring theater to people in, in ways that you couldn't do if you didn't have this job. So already when I went in, yes, I wanted to remain an artist – 
That was a huge, huge um, mission. And I realized I wouldn't stay if I couldn't. And then the second half of that mission had to do with community and building a body of work of other people. And because I'm a playwright, I think I knew what playwrights needed as they were developing their new work. And because I'm a director, um, I think that also works for me with actors and designers. And so I was able to put together those skills and what ended up being exactly the right job for me. Hmm. But let's talk about the playwright for a moment. And Mm. and as we go on, we'll talk about the specific plays. But already directing a couple of shows a year in a season – curating the rest of the season, visiting those community centers, Mm -hmm. doing those talks, that complicates the life of a playwright. And how do you feel becoming an artistic director? Because you are one of the rare artistic directors who is a playwright. Interestingly, Nagel Jackson also Mm -hmm. wrote plays, Mm -hmm. but there are very few. Do you feel that your writing... Not that the writing itself suffered, but the time to write, the ability to write yes. was, it, was affected? You have really put your finger on it. Um, that's been the biggest challenge. As a director, I don't think um, being an artistic director really got in the way. I didn't do as much freelancing, obviously. Um, I needed to stay close to the theater and, and nurture every project. Um, but as a writer, the challenge has been how to be both an administrator, help develop the work of new writers, keep my own uh, directing going, nurture every single project through to the end, and have the brain space, the mind space to write. One can always be a, a, a brilliant manager of time and say, all right, I've got these two hours or this hour and 15 minutes a day, but that's not what you need as a writer. You need to be able to walk on the beach or uh, walk around the block uh, for a few days or a few weeks until that idea really starts to settle into your mind and then at the right moment you sit down and you write. That has suffered. But um, I have a board and an audience and a, and a staff at the theater that is greatly supportive of my writing. So when there have been cracks in the schedule, I have found them and I've gotten the support needed to do the writing. So I've done quite a few plays and, and adaptations since I took over as artistic director. I probably, though you never know, it's the road not taken, um, I may have written more if I were not writing, if I were not running the theater. And that's a, sometimes a sadness to me. Do you literally get to detach yourself from the theater for a week or two or three at a time sometimes to just go off and write? I have done that. If, if for example, I'm suddenly uh, seized by an idea and another show is in rehearsal and there aren't huge pressures uh, for me to be at the theater, I'll call in and say, you guys, <laughs> I'm pregnant. I've got the idea. You've got to let me you got to let me be. And everyone scrambles to shift around schedules as they can. And then if there's something that I absolutely have to do, you know, I, I go in and I do it. Hmm. We were talking a few minutes ago about the audience. And I, I have to ask um, what is knowingly a naive question. But there is at least a perception of what the community of Princeton, New Jersey <laughs> must be, dictated largely by, as I said, the university, not necessarily the geography, et cetera, et cetera. And without casting aspersions or repeating the stereotype, 
do you believe or did you find that the audience was not as much one kind of person? Absolutely. And what kind of breadth do you have in terms of audience, in terms of, mm-hmm. of, of age, of, of race, of, of all of those things? I think one of the reasons I've stayed is because we have developed – well, Athel Fugard calls it the best audience in America. I would say certainly one of the best audiences in America. I like playing to the McCarter House um, with my plays better than any place else. Um, the audience has become very open, uh, and they listen. Um, but they 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 are they op- they are open to new work. They're open to the work of people of color. They're open to the work of women. They're open to political work. They love the classics. They've just grown and grown and grown with me. And as I've grown, they've grown, and we've kept the conversation going. So because they're a very challenging crowd and because I keep challenging our staff to make it more and more challenging, it is an audience that keeps me on my toes and I think is great for the kind of work I love to do. Now, when I arrived, it was not the audience I wanted. So that's where Peter Hall was so smart when he said, you know, wave goodbye, but be happy about it. Let the tears flow, but but, but wave happily. You want those folks to go, and you want the people who want to um, engage in your vision to come. And they have, and I've expanded that so that we now can say we've really got a very healthy younger crowd. We're really working on, on getting more and more young people in, both in terms of our programming, which brings them in, but also in terms of our reaching out to them. And that's on a good in a good place. It's now very diverse racially and ethnically, which it wasn't when I arrived. We do a lot of work uh, by people of color or by and about people of color. Um, We have opened up, uh, I think, in terms of both um, economics, if you will, those people who are extremely challenged economically all the way up to the people who are are sailing through the hard times without feeling much of a pinch. Um, we've got the whole gambit, and I like that. I like that we've got an age range, we've got an ethnic and racial range, and we've got an economic range mm-hmm. in the house. Um, now, of course, you probably know that the governor has frozen all of the funds to the municipalities. And so that means our, our Arts Council grant has been absolutely frozen. We were expecting a large three, six-figure gift. Um, and this is true of all of the theaters in New Jersey, All of the theaters say. in New Jersey. Yeah. All the arts groups in New Jersey, some of the schools in New Jersey, everyone's being hit very hard. And we don't know if any of this money will be forthcoming. Um, it's a very tricky moment, but one of the things that is so life-affirming or art-affirming, if you will, is that after 20 years, our audience is signing those petitions and calling the governor and going to Trenton and and really um, uh, marching on our behalf. Um, They are also digging deep. Um, As we first from the, you know, economic meltdown, at least 30 to 35 percent of the funds available uh, from the foundations uh, were were cut back. They lost that much. Um, Our endowment was with Princeton University. It was, was in fact, uh, invested through them, and they lost uh, in the low 30s. So um, it's been a challenging time, but I must say now that we're asking individuals to help as much as they can, they are 
stepping up and they are increasing their gifts, hmm. which is a wonderful um, vote of confidence. They're saying that our lives are so enriched by this theater, we will not lose you. Hmm. We just won't. And I know we're, we're, we're not shuddering. We are keeping the doors wide open. Well, we're talking about 20 years at a university, but uh, living around university life is not alien to you. That's you, exactly uh, right. You, you grew up around universities. Mm-hmm. Your dad was a professor at Smith. Yes. Um, so you, you spent your younger years in Northampton mm-hmm. and then uh, moved out to Chicago. Was your dad then teaching at University, University of Chicago? University of Chicago, living in Hyde Park. Mm-hmm. So where in these academic worlds did you come to theater? Because your dad was not a theater professor. He certainly wasn't. In fact, the theater wasn't really much of... I I didn't really get involved in theater through my parents, though I suppose when we moved to Chicago, they... They were very good citizens, so they took out a subscription to the symphony and to the Goodman Theater. Um, and I have, I'm ashamed to say I was always very bored when I went in, 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 when we first arrived in town. But I went to an extraordinary high school. This is the same uh, school where the Obama kids go, uh, the laboratory schools from the University of Chicago. I went to UHI, and I had a classic uh, thing happen. I loved. Uh, literature. I wrote. I wrote everything but plays. Um, I was a musician. I loved physic. Uh, 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 I loved uh, visual work. I was sculpting. Um, but I got a crush on a boy who ended up loving to be in the theater. He was an actor, and so I. Well, it's usually we hear it the him. other way around. Is that yes, the boys were following the girls? Yeah, but, no. Huh. And though you know, I had this huge crush on him, and I, and I thought, oh, this is cool, and I watched some rehearsals. I thought, well, how do I get involved? So I was basically swept the floors and was told, well, you know, if you work on the play, you can go to the cast party. So I worked very hard on the play to go to the cast party. Um, and the crush on the boy quickly ended. But, you know, as I uh, sometimes say, you know, the love affair with the theater just got stronger and stronger and stronger. It was from that moment on, I was I was um, hooked. Were you acting in high school? Eventually I did. I went from designing props and costumes and makeup to then acting and then from acting uh, to directing. Even in high school? Even in high school. Hmm. My junior year in high school, um, the head of the program said, you have a director's mind. You see the whole thing. Why don't you try it? Hmm. Now, he may have just been trying to get me off stage. I don't know. (laughs) But I did it. And again, the worlds all came together. Hmm. So then you went off to Harvard. And was that... uh, for a theater degree? No, there wasn't a theater degree at Harvard. You, in fact, there were, I was thinking you could take a, a freshman seminar in acting from Bob Chapman and George Hamlin, who were the men who ran the Loeb Drama Center. But there was no, there were no courses you could take for credit at Harvard in theater. Hmm. So I was a literature major in French and English and American literature. And every spare minute I was at the Loeb uh, acting. And directing. Hmm. And at that point, it certainly predated the American Repertory Theater establishing themselves at the Loeb. So was there professional theater on campus that was a model in any way? There was not. Hmm. We all modeled uh, after each other, which was quite an amazing time. And um, we could apprentice in the summers 
to a sort of summer stock professional uh, level uh, summer theater. And I did that one year, and that's when I met Greg Mosier, actually, Mm -hmm. um, before he became artistic director of the Goodman and then Lincoln Center. He was the assistant to R. David MacDonald, as I was, who was the artistic director of the Citizens Theater in Glasgow, which was a great, great apprenticeship for me. Um, But no, on the summers, what I would do is go and um, observe uh, those directors I most admired. So I went to London one year, saw that Tony Richardson was directing Vanessa Redgrave and Antony and Cleopatra at the Bankside Globe under a tent. This was before the Globe was built. Sam Wanamaker was producing. And I knocked on Sam's door and said... I worship Tony Richardson. He had just done um, uh, Tom Jones, the movie Tom Jones. And I said, and I'd just written a, a paper at Harvard for um, on Antony and Cleopatra. And he said, well, at least you're smart. And I hmm. said, oh, well, thanks. I hope so. And he said, well, we don't have any money. And I said, well, if you would buy me lunch, that's all I need. So he said, you, you're hired. Go go meet Tony. <laughs> and if he doesn't despise you, you've got a job. I went, great. And he sent me over to Tony Richardson's office in Mayfair, and I met him and John Osborne, my other idol at the time, and thought I died and gone to heaven. Wow. And I lived on one meal a day that they gave me and stayed on a friend's floor in London, and, and I was Tony's assistant. And it was one of the most mind-blowing uh, uh, experiences of my life, and I look back to it to this day as such. Wow! Yeah. yeah. So, wow. so that that was still while you were in college. Yeah. It must have going back for I don't know if it would be your junior or senior year. Must have been quite a trip after having done that for the summer. Well, it it was, um, and that year I I actually um, directed my first Shakespeare. I did the Scottish play, and and I put to use all that I'd learned from him. Um, and he'd asked me, and I sometimes think about, you know, the road's not taken. Um, he asked me if I would leave school, and he'd set me up at the Royal Court in London and, hmm. and start directing professionally. And I thought I should finish school, which is interesting. I don't know that I would make that decision hmm. now, well, not only but did I you, did then. Not only did you finish school, but you went to graduate school. I did. Was that straight out of Harvard? Uh, it was, yes. So you... So again, you didn't call Tony Richardson a year later and say, no. can I still go to the royal court? No, I didn't. Hmm. That's really interesting. I didn't. Um, I decided I wanted to go someplace where I could apprentice and where I could get a degree if I needed it and also not have any debt. And I got the Bush Fellowship in directing at the Guthrie. And again, first woman um, – to get that fellowship. And I remember considering whether to take that or whether to go to London again. And I I did decide to take this very rigorous program. Again, you never know how life would be different if I had made the London choice rather than the Minneapolis choice. But I went to Minneapolis and um, I apprenticed under Michael Langham and learned classic theater at its highest level. Um, I wrote uh, my first play, which was produced, and I directed professionally um, when I was 22 years old at Guthrie II, and I helped to to set up a new theater there. Um, 
And I started lifelong relationships with extraordinary artists from a very young age. But I was, yeah, I was directing professionally within a year and a half of being out of college. When we worked together in 1986, I was Mm -hmm. the press director at Hartford. And uh, I remember speaking with you about press opportunities. And a lot of what the papers wanted to write about was, um, oh, a female director. Mm. And you said to me at the time, I'm tired of those stories already. I, (laughs) I really, you know, why can't they just talk to me? As a director, and I obviously gave you some pitch that you accepted because we needed to, we wanted to sell some tickets. <laughs> but I'm curious. In listening to you talk, you've mentioned a number of mentors, yes, all male. Absolutely, there is a very lively debate going on, particularly in the not-for-profit theater, about um, female playwrights. Yes, and you were pretty groundbreaking. You certainly weren't Mm -hmm. the first woman to direct theater in America. We at The Wing like to point out uh, Antoinette Perry herself back in the day and people like Margot Jones and Nina Vance and and those famous names. But Mm -hmm. it was still such a novelty, even into the 80s. So in the 70s, how it sounds like you broke through relatively easily. In, uh, no, in terms no, of these, the, the, no. the, the fellowship and the work at the Guthrie. Well, it may look that way, but on a daily level, it was um, it, it was astonishingly hard. Hmm. Um, for example, when I was speaking to George Hamlin um, at Harvard about what I wanted to do, whether I wanted to go to film school or to theater um, as a director, he said, well, you know, my dear, you really are very talented, but you can't have a professional career as a woman director in this country. You really should think about going into children's theater. And I remember the the rage that hit me, and I'm very lucky that my parents were early feminists because I'd always thought a woman could do whatever she wanted to do. So when he told me I couldn't, it was rather too late. <laughs> and I uh, I just decided I'm going to I'm going to do it, and I'm going to do it well. And you you just watch me. So I was fueled by fueled by quite a bit of of uh, of anger. Um, that sometimes was put to good use. But at the Guthrie, again, Michael Langham said, you know, you can't be uh, a, a woman director, you know. Hmm. You don't, you, you can't do that. And he had me audition for him. He said, audition well, as a director? As an actress. Oh. He said, you shouldn't, be a, you shouldn't be a director. And he had me audition. And so I auditioned for him. He said, well, you're very good. You should be an actress. I said, but I don't want to be an actress. I want to be a director. And that's what I got the fellowship for. And that's what I'm going to do. Are you going to revoke my fellowship? And he thought that was quite amusing that I stood up to him like that. So he said, no, you'll be on my right. Uh, you'll be on, on my right in rehearsals. And I want you to be not only an excellent assistant stage manager, but I want you to be watching as an, as, as an assistant. And I want to see what you're thinking. So that started a very prickly, interesting relationship. And I learned a great deal from him. Um, but when it came to um, my directing – he was not interested in that happening. Um, so I, when I left the theater, even though I had had that one wonderful experience at Guthrie II, I stayed in Minneapolis rather than going to New York at the end of the fellowship 
And I freelanced in the Twin Cities um, at community theaters, at the university theater, and in the small equity houses until finally a wonderful um, critic named Mike Steele um, who wrote for the... Minneapolis Star Tribune. Star Tribune wrote an article saying, why is it that Emily Mann has not been on the main stage of the Guthrie as so many of you know the fellows before her? Could it be because she's a woman? And that sort of startled everyone. Michael was leaving, and Alvin Epstein was coming in as artistic director from Yale. And he saw my work in a small theater. He read that article, and he said, just tell me what you want to direct. Wow. And he gave me my first break as a as a main stage director. But it was five years of sort of doing three, four, five plays a year in that area for hoping and praying that I would get the main stage chance. And then I did. Hmm. Um, it took five of those years and a lot of um, condescension, really, and hmm. from, from, from the powers that be. It was, it was painful. Well, having... I mean, knowing both Alvin and Michael Langham, oh, they're very yes. different. They're very different people. Both, yes. both brilliant. Both Ultimately, brilliant. Alvin's tenure there was very short. Very short. So it's very lucky. I mean, I, I was got very close to Alvin um, as I had to Michael, but in a different way. Um, but on the opening night of uh, the Glass Menagerie, which is what I directed, I came up to find Alvin to thank him for this glorious evening, and I looked up at the screen backstage of the television, there he was explaining to the press why he'd been fired. Hmm. So that was just a, uh, you know, a, an evening of such, you know, opposing emotions, huge happiness and great sadness um, all, all at once. Um, but at that particular play, be- that production became a very successful one and toured around and and sold out, and that was a... I really how I, I sort of felt I'd become a real artist by then. So in terms of your directing career, after that mm-hmm. landmark uh, event of, of doing Glass Menagerie at the Guthrie, which is were you the first woman or the 20th woman, <laughs> directing at the Guthrie is, is something mm-hmm. so many directors aspire to. Mm-hmm. Where did you go next? How did you get your – your next freelance jobs, and how did you move out of Minneapolis? Well, I decided it was time, you know, to get out of the nest and fly on my own, and so I did, and I moved to New York, um, just packed up my apartment and and drove, um, and I ended up staying with my sister in Brooklyn looking for an apartment, and um, I had the great good fortune of meeting... Um, David Jones, who had seen my work at the Guthrie, and he had been a, a director at the Royal Shakespeare Company and was just then starting the new um, repertory company at BAM. Hmm. And he hired me um, to direct there and um, then kept me on as resident director at BAM. And that was a wonderful two years, though that company did not last um, longer than the two years. I also had been writing my second play um, while I was still at the Guthrie, and um, I 
it was called Still Life. And this was a play that I finally um, finished and did first at the Goodman Stage 2 in Chicago and then um, at the Women's Project in New York. And it became an enormous success off-Broadway and won a lot of Obie Awards that year and became the production of the year and it went all over the country. And that sort of set me on my way as a playwright. Well, we've um, jumped past your first play, oh, so let's yeah, take. Sorry. Let's ta- no, mm-hmm. I was actually going to going to stay on the directing track, mm-hmm. and I, I had this all worked out. Oh, but, sorry, <laughs> but let's jump back. Um, all right, you know, again, talking about the difficulty of being a female mm-hmm. director. Again, we're going back now thirty years yes. to say, you know, here you are in your twenties. You mm-hmm. said you'd always written things, but. How did you get your first play on? Because a new play by a female playwright in the 70s was was even rarer. It certainly was. And I must say that um, I found a a way to do it in a kind of different form. So rather than the early plays I was writing when I was um, working off the blank page, I started um, to work off of oral history. And what happened was... It started in college, and um, uh, my father had been the oral, he'd been the uh, great American historian, and he was asked by the American Jewish Committee to head up the initiative on getting oral histories of survivors of the Holocaust, survivors, camp survivors. And he had decided the best thing was not to have professional historians interview the survivors, but to have family members or close friends do it so that these these um, interviews would go very deep and be very truthful. And, and have an instant rapport. Yes, exactly right. So one Christmas, I remember being home trying to study for um, my exams and I was at my father's desk and there was a stack of folders and I opened the one on top and there was something that looked like a play. And on the top it was a um, it said, this, I'm in my mother's kitchen on the Upper West Side. Um, my mother is 60-something and I am 20-something. I can't remember the exact words. My mother came from Czechoslovakia. And we are having a um, conversation about her experiences from the camps. And I started to read, and it was the most extraordinary mother-daughter scene I'd ever read. And one of the things I most clearly remember is she asked her mother how she survived Treblinka when her entire family died and everyone she knew died in the camp. And she said, you know, that she'd been, you know, a a ballerina in the National Ballet of Prague, and she would close her eyes and she would think of a moment of perfect beauty when she was on point in her tutu, you know, and in a pool of light with a male partner helping her finish a turn on point. She said she would just hear the music, she'd see the light, she'd see the turn. And as she kept herself focused on perfecting that turn, she would feel life come back into her. And it just blew me away. I was astounded. And I remember finished reading the 50 pages or so of this beautiful piece. And I was, you know, sobbing. And and I went to my father and said, could I possibly use this? Um, oral history as as a play, it would be just the most amazing play. And he l- said, "No, <laughs> he said, this belongs to the young woman who who made this interview, and it's going into the archives at the uh, American Jewish Committee um, for 
for research, why don't you start doing your own? Do your own oral histories. Make your own plays. And he bought me a tape recorder. Hmm. And I went off and did that that summer. Uh, my, my college roommate, aunt, was the uh, subject of my first play. I got a grant from uh, Radcliffe, as did Irene, my, my roommate, who is now a great novelist, by the way, in Europe, Irene Dishu. And she got a grant to do oral histories tracing all of her family that was left in Europe. She had a fascinating family, half Jewish and half Catholic. And the Catholics that were left, um, she wanted to to, um, to interview. The Jews had, were either dead or um, the other, the aunt was in, in, in London. We were going to meet with her. And I was going to go back to my grandmother's village in Poland and um, then do an oral history of hmm. her. So, to make a long story short, um, we went to uh, Irene's Aunt Anula first in London and went to her house for tea and asked her questions about her life with a tape recorder running. And she was this fabulous character. And um, I ended up using that as the basis of my first play, which was a monologue. It was called Anula, Autobiography of a Survivor. Barbara Brin, who is the leading lady at the Guthrie Theater and just a hoot and a great character actress, um, I gave her that play and asked her if she would do it. She said yes, and that's what I directed at Guthrie too. Mm. And um, it was Anula speaking to the audience as she had spoken to me mm. and, uh, and changed my life. And I hoped she would touch the, uh, the audience, and she did. And she cooked live. You could smell the chicken. You could <laughs> and um, I, in fact, went back to that form when I did Having Our Say, where I decided to put, to put that play in a kitchen as well. Hmm. Well, as you said, so many of your plays are drawn from historical record. Now mm-hmm. some people mm-hmm. would, would refer to them as documentary theater. Right, it's, and it's, I call it that, documentary. Yeah. So um, – the as you said, still life was a breakthrough here in New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, execution of justice built upon that. Yes, and, it did. Um, you first did that. It looks like in about eighty four, and as I recall, mm-hmm. that got done at a lot of regional theaters, or at least several, right yes. off the bat, multiple productions. Yes. You were not directing all of those, as I recall? No, I only directed, I, I directed my first play and Still Life. And then with Execution of Justice, it was so big, I really felt um, that I I should keep working on it only as a writer. And I did that through this incredible network of the not-for-profit theaters, Um you know, it started with Tony Taconi and, and Oscar Eustace. They had commissioned it, actually. This was at the Eureka, the Eureka Theater. Theater yeah. right. They had commissioned Angels in America and Execution of Justice in the same year. So Tony was working and I was working, and that's where You we got yours done it. a lot faster. I did. <laughs> yes, I did. Uh, and I, um, I went around the country. There were about ten wonderful um, productions. And then finally I directed it at the Guthrie. And it moved from the Guthrie to Broadway. And we should explain that Execution of Justice now tells a story that people are familiar with through various versions and accounts. But it dealt specifically with the trial of Dan White for the murder of George Moscone and Harvey Milk. That's correct. 
Uh, and there's renewed interest in it because of the movie Milk, and there's talk about um, reviving it for Broadway next season. But um, it was a play just about taking place, I guess, six years after the actual event. And it was an enormous success all over the country. Uh, and people were very excited about bringing it into New York. And I remember how upsetting opening was <laughs> because one of the key reviewers' first line was, why should New Yorkers care about a sordid little incident in San Francisco? Hmm. And it was the first time I'd gotten uh, reviews that were not absolutely glowing for it. So it did not last long on Broadway. Do you think the response to it was that gay rights and acceptance of someone like Harvey Milk was simply not part of the culture yet? Were they giving a bad review to you, Emily Mann, the playwright and director, or were they giving a review to their own inability to deal with what you had chosen to write about? I don't know the answer to that. I'd love to believe it's the latter. Um, (laughs) And I actually do. I mean, it's a play that has had an enormous life ever since it started out. It continues to be done all over the country. And and, um, it's taught at universities. It's it's required reading in so many American theater uh, play reading courses. So um, as much as I thought then that I would never get over the pain of, of its reception here, it has been quite sustaining to meet people whose lives were very strongly changed by seeing the play or by acting it or or um, or doing it themselves. And so I, um, I feel that it's sort of maybe, again, it's time has more come. It was also a time when people said, oh, well, documentaries or theater of testimonies, I, it's the other term used for my plays, um, has now become accepted. It wasn't mm-hmm. accepted then. Um, it was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize um, that year, and they didn't give a Pulitzer because they wouldn't give a Pulitzer to a documentary piece. It wasn't a play. It wasn't mm-hmm. considered a real play. So, you know, uh, culturally we've shifted a lot. We have different um, subjects now that will will are, are acceptable to be written about for the theater um, and s- different forms. But certainly documentary has found its its own rightful place i think in the in the literature hmm. now we don't get terribly personal on this show we really like to talk about the work but it's it's worth noting that at about this time if i'm catching it correctly um you had your son nick and mm-hmm. so and presumably that took some time away from from directing and even from writing, was there a period where you had where you sort of had to just step back and, and be the mom? Uh, yes, but I couldn't afford not to work, and I'm actually quite grateful for that. So, though I wasn't directing as much um, because I wanted to be at home with Nick, and if he weren't portable at a certain time. I, I didn't do it. As you might recall, when I was first at Hartford, Nick was a baby. So he was very portable. And um, that I could do. But as he began to need more and more his own home and his own place to be, I started doing more writing. So I wrote more plays and I wrote screenplays. And that's how um, I made a living for the family and, and stayed close to my son. Hmm. 
Were you looking to become – I mean is you, you've already talked about being counseled by Peter Hall and by Mark Lamas um, about taking the McCarter job. Were you seeking to be an artistic director at that point or was that something that came your way and then you said, oh, I guess I should think about this? Well, um, once I knew that I was going to be um – uh, I, I, I was div- getting a divorce. I, th- I realized there had to be a home base for Nicholas where he could go to school and um, I could continue my work. And I knew I either had to do that through writing film uh, in one place or uh, teaching or by running a theater. Hmm. And all my career, I've always... Um, talked about how I thought theater should be run. And I remember Mark saying, well, now put your money where your mouth is. You've got to step up and do what you've been yapping about for all these years. And I thought it was such a great idea that I put my hat in the ring. And I called Greg Kandel, who was was the headhunter, and I said, Greg, I've said no to you every time I thought I could not be an artist and run a theater. Now I think that's exactly what I want to do. And I want to see if I can. And he was thrilled and he got hmm. me interviews and the process started. Hmm. Now, it is impossible to encapsulate, even if we'd started from the very beginning of this conversation and went right to the end, to encapsulate 20 years mm. at McCarter. But let me ask you a couple of key questions. Um, is there a single show that was done at McCarter that you are perhaps proudest of? Or that was a really signal moment for you at that theater. We've spoken about the effect of the three sisters already. three sisters, right. I don't think it could be any one. I mean, 95 was my play that I wrote and directed, Having Our Say, uh, which was, again, another piece of uh, a documentary theater that uh, went on to Broadway and was... Uh, a huge breakthrough for me artistically, but also for the theater. It cemented in the eyes of the African-American communities around us that we were a a theater for them. And we have uh, continued that to this day. We've probably done more work buying about African-American people or people of color than any other theater in the country that is not ethnic or racially specific. So that was a great breakthrough. Um, Just... Uh, recently, uh, to look at a piece that's not my own, um, I, I discovered a young uh, playwright, and I love, I absolutely love nurturing the next group coming up. This young man who was 27 years old when I met him, Terrell Alvin McCraney. He was still a student at the Yale School of Drama as a playwright, and I read a play of his, uh, and uh, I knew that I wanted to work with him and his his play came to us first uh, the brother's size and we put it into our our festival of new work and um then i said well what are your other plays and there were two more that he was one that wasn't finished and one called in the red and brown water and they all related in terms of character and so we did a reading of the other two and i said oh my god it's a trilogy why don't we we'll we'll commit to doing this all together Hmm. So that uh, play um, it took two more years of development, opened last spring to just huge success um, at the McCarter, and we co-produced that with the Public Theater New York, and it's 
um, this is still it's just still running. It may still be running as we're speaking, but we're speaking yeah. of the, what what are collectively called the brother sister plays. The brother sister plays exactly, and that was one of the great events for me as a producer to have found someone with so much promise and so much talent, um, and be able to help him. Uh, bring something this ambitious and this large to fruition um, with full support of our staff and our theater um, and to have it go on to such acclaim um, in New York and then also it has been uh, two of the plays have also been in London and he's gotten great acclaim for them so that has been a particularly thrilling um, part of being an artistic director that I could um, help in terms of production and producing and developing the work of of, of a new artist. Mm-hmm. Now you opened the current season with mm-hmm. having our say. You, I did. You went back to that. Mm-hmm. Was that because uh, you wanted to particularly revisit that piece of work? Was that a programming choice and uh, a personal choice and artistic choice? How did that? How did Great that come question. about? Question. It's it's all of those things. Um, it was my it's my twentieth anniversary season, and so what I wanted the season to do was to show where we've been, the best of where we've been, talk about where we are at this moment, and then where we're going. And so, where we've been, I looked back, and I not only came to having our say as one of the high points, but I also realized because this play is about two African American. Uh, sisters who were both over 100 years old, and this would be in 1995, um, I look at where we are 14, 15 years later, and in terms of what we as a nation are in terms of race, suddenly we had an African-American president for the first time. And I remembered them talking about that. One sister said, there will never be an African-American president. There will be, never be, as they said, a Negro president. And the other one saying, yes, there will someday. There will be. And I thought, I'd love to hear that now in front of an audience and see how mm-hmm. they, an audience would react to it. So that was one thing that interested me a great deal. Second thing was, I, as an artist, I... I or a playwright and director, I knew there was that I could plumb more depths in it. Um, I was the first time around not only the director but the writer, and so I was I was rewriting and I was fixing and I was listening as much to the play and how to improve it as I was in terms of the direction. And I also have grown as a human being and as an, as a director and 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 writer. So. I was able to approach it with such ease, and in fact, I did go deeper than mm. I ever thought possible. It was wonderful but to without return rewriting? to it without rewriting. Hmm. I um, I also had an extraordinary young um, uh, an, intern, an intern. We do two interns, artistic interns a year, and he was the directing intern this year. Um, African American young man from oh, just graduated from Georgetown, and now this year there we were able to do research in the room. He had his he had um, a uh, computer there, and we were able to do research at the you know in the flash of of, of a mouse. We were able to. Um, through Google and through research mm. that we can now do, do the kind of research I couldn't have done without years of work last time around. So we learned even more about the background. Although, I want to ask, mm-hmm. the first time around you did it, I believe one of the Delaney sisters was still they were the, both, they were both alive. still alive. In fact, they came to the show on Broadway. 
they came Mother's Day, Sunday, <laughs> uh, matinee. So, uh, so you had your primary research handy back yes, then. Exactly. Now you have the internet. Exactly right. Hmm. And we just had a fantastic time doing it. And because one of the actresses had been playing the other sister in the national tour of it, um, 13 years ago she knew the play and so that there's a, a line in the play that um, one of the sisters says she says in some ways my sister and I are like one person mm-hmm. so having done the other part she was now able to play um, the uh, uh, Sadie part with such an understanding of her sister that the meld was just astonishing and they, they really took it out of out of the park and also one other thing, when Barack Obama was elected, I was out of the country, I was in London, and I remembered hearing that there was an, an 108-year-old African-American woman who stood in order to vote for the first time in her life, stood for eight hours, and I thought, oh my goodness, I thought of the Delaney sisters, and I was going that noontime to see Harold Pinter for lunch, and um, I got in the door of, of the restaurant and Harold looked at me and said, this is after we finally knew, you know, I'd woken up and found out that Obama had won. He looked at me and said, how happy are you? And I said, ecstatic. And he said, well, why don't we um, order champagne? I said, absolutely. So we ordered champagne. He poured the glasses and he took the glass. He looked me in the eyes he wrote, as he raised the glass and he said, I haven't been able to say this since 1945. God bless America. Hmm. And it's the last time I saw Harold, and I, you know, I treasure that. Uh, I treasure that moment enormously. And we talked about this play, and we talked about um, his work, and uh, that was another high point of my twenty years. I want, in the limited time we have left, to ask you about one artist that you've had the opportunity to collaborate with, and will be collaborating with again here in New York next season, and that is Edward Albee. Oh, yes. Mr. Albee is a formidable artist (laughs) um, with a great body of work, and I'm wondering what your experience has been working with him, and and to be clear, you've directed several of his plays, Mm -hmm. the most recent being Me, Myself, and I, which you will be doing next season at Playwrights Horizons. Yes, opening their season. But Mm -hmm. but what what has been... The relationship between you and Edward. Oh, fantastic! I mean, I, I, I can't sometimes believe how a fortunate person I am to have worked with so many great, great, great artists in my life, and now with Edward. Um, I think because, well, this is what he tells me: because he so admires my work as a playwright and, and as a director, but because he admires me as a writer, he feels safe. He says. He knows I know what a writer needs, and he knows that I want him to be able to see his play the way he envisions it. And so because he knows that's what I'm in the business of doing, he can, in fact, um, breathe easily and tell me anything so that um, if he's disagreeing with a note or if he's disagreeing with... Um, the interpretation of a particular part of, of his play by an actor or an actress. Um, we'll go and we'll talk about it, and he'll tell me what it is he really wants. Or I will actually ask him in front of 
uh, the actors, is, is, is this, you know, are, are you, what did you mean by this line, Edward? And he will be able to tell us. Hmm. So to be able to have, you know, one of the great masters of uh, the American theater in the room with you as he's helping put up the premiere production of his new play, it's, it's one of the great honors of my life. So we get along splendidly is, this, this, is, the, is the long and short of it. And um, I uh, have learned an enormous amount from him, both as a, uh, a playwright and a director, but also as a, as a human being in this field. I admire him enormously. Mm-hmm. And I admire his body of work, and I admire how even when the critics savaged him in the middle of his career and he had to go off to Europe to get produced, he never stopped writing. He doesn't repeat himself. He's always trying to break through to another place. He's one of our greats, Hmm. and I've had the opportunity to work with him. It's just astounding. One opportunity that you had over the 20 years was the opportunity to have a second theater built. Yes. The original McCarter Theater is a fairly large feeling house. It seats mm-hmm. about a thousand. A little bit over a thousand. Mm-hmm. Um, but you had the opportunity to build a smaller theater. Yes. The Berlin Theater, um, named after Roger Berlin. Mm-hmm. Um, what kind of freedom did having a smaller space. So many people want to move to bigger venues. <laughs> what kind of freedom did having a smaller space give you uh, as a producer, artistic director? And director. Director, and playwright. playwright. I was <laughs> yes. doing dot, dot, dot in my <laughs> yes. head. But. Oh, it, it's almost impossible to measure how big it is. I, As much as I loved the McCarter and being the artistic director there, I don't think I could have stayed if I didn't know we were going to get a smaller house. Um the Berlin is, is a godsend. We can do not only new work, but also the classic work up close and personal. We also have one of the great, great rehearsal rooms in the country, and we can make that into a black box. And so we can also do um, performances for people at uh, you know 60 and, 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 and 90 uh, people. That also has been a great boon. And some of our most exciting new work has, has been done there. So I, 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 as I say, it's hard to quantify how important it is. All I can say is clearly we've been able to expand the repertoire that we can produce well. Um, and also we will not always do just the new work in the small house and the big epic work in the big house. I mean, we did a Hamlet in the small house. We did a new play by Stephen Dietz in, or Athel Fugard in the big house. So it's what is best, what's the best space for this particular piece of work with this director's particular vision. That's what we try to do, fit the work to the space. And because now it doesn't all have to find a way to be working right in this gargantuan space, we're, the sky's the limit, basically. And is there a new play by Emily Mann on tap anytime <laughs> soon? I am in the midst of researching and thinking about my next play. Yes. So with 20 years in the McCarter and more than 30 years on the stages of America, 
Emily Mann, congratulations on the anniversary year. And thank you for joining us today on Downstage Center. Thank you, Howard. What a pleasure. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free from americantheaterwing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of our fans on Facebook at The American Theatre Wing. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, we hope you'll consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit the website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center in the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theatre.